All right, so go to the book of James. The book of James. We are slowly but surely getting closer to the end of our Walk Through the Bible series. I think we've been in it almost two years now. i got to find James in my Bible. But Martin Luther, he's one of the, one of the well-known reformer. Uh, he said in his introduction to the first edition of his German New Testament in 1522, and he reads this quote, bear with me, it was written in 1522. Just keep that in mind. But he says, in fine, St. John's Gospel and his first epistle, St. Paul's epistles, especially those to the Romans, Galatians, Ephesians, and St. Peter's first epistle, these are the books which show thee Christ and teach, and teach thee everything that is needful and blessed for thee to know, even though thou never see or hear any other book or doctrine. Therefore, is St. James' epistle a right, a right strawy epistle uh, in comparison with them? For it has no gospel character to it. St. Luther, uh, he had a problem with the book of James. He had a little bit of an issue. But one thing you want to take into consideration is what he was coming out of. He was coming out of Catholicism, which was legalistic, as legalistic, and he was struggling. Uh, going. He felt like what it taught would bring people back uh, into legalism and works, works-based salvation rather than salvation by grace, by faith alone in Jesus Christ. So Luther had little to use for James because it contained little teaching about the great doctrines of the Christian faith that he so passionately defended, and he did passionately defend uh, the faith. And so, but just keep in mind, again, where, what he came out of, this legalistic uh, Catholicism. His opponents would often use James chapter 2 to defend justification by works, and so he had a hard time uh, dealing with that. Now, even though it's true that you do not see a systematic laying out of the Christian doctrines of justification by faith, uh, in James you won't see that, but what you do see is an intensely practical manual for Christian living. Is that is very, very, what you'll see, I hope, is that it's very practical uh, as, as for how we are to live our lives as Christians. And what we need to recognize is that holy living and sound doctrine can never be separated. These two things go together. That we must have correct doctrine and also holy living. They are connected and they can't be separated. It is the right doctrine that drives holy living. And so if our doctrine's wrong, we're not going to live a holy life that brings honor to God. If our doctrine is right, then we can do that. And this is what the point that James is making uh, in this book. Luther's statement that I read just a minute ago, it's inaccurate regarding James. Uh, again, he did a lot of great things. Luther was a great, he was a prominent figure in the Reformation. And a lot of the things that we, we have today and the, and the doctrines that we have and that, that are pillars of, of the church came from that time period. But in this statement itself, it's inaccurate regarding James. We need to understand that James and Paul are supplementary, not contradictory, as this epistle, is, it assumes that there's a knowledge of the doctrines. I hope this makes sense. So when you read James... It's assuming that, because he's writing, again, in chapter 1, chapter 1, verse 1, says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion. 
So he's writing it to Jewish people, the dispersed Jewish people. So they would have, uh, they would hopefully, these Christians would already have some idea and some foundations in the doctrine uh, of, of the great doctrines that, we, that Luther uh, defended. But what we need to know is that it was inaccurate because of this. Paul and James are not at odds. They actually complemented one another. It's just it's kind of the, what you say, the two sides of the same coin. They're coming at it from two different directions. So hopefully you'll see that tonight. The author's intended message of this letter is that genuine saving faith, and that's key, genuine, genuine saving faith uh, will produce godly works. And so there are, if there's somebody who professes to be a believer, but there's been zero life change in them, was that genuine saving faith? And that's the question that we have to ask. And so this is what James is getting at. The works don't save, but rather they are fruit or evidence of salvation. And this is the main point of James I hope you will see uh, tonight. So before we jump right back into it, a little bit about the author. This is James. Of course, it's called James. Uh, but he names himself right off the bat. first word in, uh, in the letter is James. It's, he was also known as James the Just. He's the half-brother of Jesus. He is also the leader, or what you might say, the senior pastor of the Jerusalem church at the time. And it's interesting about him is he did not accept the claims of Jesus um, until the Lord appeared to him after his resurrection. He thought his brother was crazy. He thought his brother was a lunatic. He thought he was just making stuff up. But he, he did not believe the claims of Jesus. And so John 7, 5 it says, for not even his brothers believed in him. So we made very clear, John makes it very clear, that his brothers did not believe in him. But when you come to 1 Corinthians 15, verses 5 through 8, it says he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James. Now, so this was not the apostle James, this was his brother James is speaking of. Then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. This is Paul speaking. So he starts naming all these people that the resurrected Christ showed himself to. So James clearly became a passionate follower of Christ. He suffered a violent martyr's death in AD 62. Uh, how, what they did was, of course, the re good religious leaders of the day. They took him to the top of the temple, the pinnacle of the temple, and they threw him off. He didn't die. Of course, he was seriously injured. He didn't die. And so they finished him off with fuller clubs and beat him to death. That's, 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 how he, uh, that's how he was martyred. But what's great about this, what's neat about this, is it demonstrates the great transformational power found in Jesus Christ. He came from a guy who didn't even believe to a guy who gave his life for a Savior, gave his life for Christ. And it isn't possible, what he's saying throughout this letter, it isn't possible to come to Christ for salvation and not be changed forever. So think back if you've been a believer, maybe you're a new believer, maybe you've been one a long time. What, is, what was your life like? Now, I know it's hard when you're a kid, if you get, came to know the Lord as a kid, but what was your life like? And how, and how is it different? How has your life changed? Even if you were saved as a little kid, your life is different now uh, because of that. Maybe you were saved for some of the heartache and some of the scars that could have come along the way. Um, but how is your life different? 
Because you cannot have this encounter with Jesus Christ. You cannot be saved and not be changed and be different forever. And what we see is that in this book is faith without works cannot be called faith. Faith without works is dead. And a dead faith is worse than no faith at all. Faith must work. It must produce. It must be visible. Verbal faith is not enough. You hear people talk about faith all the time. It's not enough. Mental faith is insufficient. This is mental assent. Yeah, I believe that's true. It's not enough. It's insufficient. James 2.19. And you want, and James 2.19 explains why this is not enough. Um, it says, you believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. So it says, good for you, you believe, in, you believe in God. Good for you, you have faith in God. So do the demons. It says they shudder. So in this letter, and this is where if you have a handout, hopefully you do. Hopefully you have a handout. Uh, we're, gonna, we're not going to talk about all these things. We're not going to talk about all of them. But I'm going to go through them and we're going to read them. And uh, hopefully we'll be able to read most of them. So go to James chapter 1. James chapter 1, start in verse 2. And what you're going to see in this letter is these characteristics of saving faith. So James chapter 1, verse 2. And it's going to take, it'll be a lot of reading, so just bear with me here. It says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let your steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach. And it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is being uh, driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is double-minded, double-minded man, unstable in his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich man in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. The sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. uh, And withers the grass. Its flower falls, its beauty perishes. So will be the rich man, so will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Then it says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God promised to those who love him. We are going to talk about this one just a minute. And the first thing that saving faith does is endures trials. Verses two through four, they say, Count it joy when you experience various trials. Well, how do we do that? Why does he say that? But what you need to know and understand is that trials are tests that challenge our faith, and they're designed to produce spiritual maturity, and therefore they can be counted as joy. Do you trust in the goodness of God? Do you trust that God is good? In verses 2 through 4, speaks of this, and it speaks about how trials of life have purpose, and that purpose is growing our faith. That purpose is that we become more like Jesus Christ. Go back, go to verse 5. Verse 5 of chapter 1 again. Since if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose he will receive anything from the Lord. He is double-minded. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. James addresses the believer who lacks wisdom in handling trials. What it's speaking about here, wisdom is 
when you're going through something in life, having wisdom to know how to handle it. Having wisdom into understanding it. Asking God for understanding. What is the lesson here? What are you trying to do? You're, he, is he trying to, he's trying to teach you something. Maybe you're under discipline uh, for, for unrepentant sin. I don't know. It could be any number of things. But asking God for wisdom in handling this trial. What are you trying to do? Uh, what are you trying to teach me? Because we, first, again, like we said a second ago, trials have a purpose. They have a purpose in our life. And God is, he is a good God who has our best interest in mind. And so James addresses these believers who lack wisdom in handling trials. Uh, wisdom, as in the Old Testament, is a, it's a God-given, God-centered discernment regarding the practical issues in life. And wisdom comes from prayer, uh, comes from prayer for God's help. Say, God, help me. God, help me understand. Would you help me know how to handle this issue? And then go to verse 12. It says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. It says, Blessed is the man or woman. Blessed is the, the person who endures the trials of life. And it says, They will be rewarded the crown of life. Now, the crown of life here, what it's alluding to, what this crown is alluding to is a, it was the wreath that they would put on an athlete's head. It's the crown that you would win in an athletic event. And that crown, what he's speaking of here, is he's speaking of this reward for being faithful is eternal life. That is our reward. It's the crown of life. Living a, li- a faithful a life of faith and, and persevering during these times. Go to Hebrews chapter 12. So keep this in mind as we're talking about bless the man who endures trials and receiving the crown of life. It's the reward for faithful perseverance. It's eternal life and all the blessings that come along with that. But Hebrews chapter 12 verse 1 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which which clings so closely let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against him himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted, blood, uh, not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood, uh, and you have forgotten... And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not, regard, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have, uh, have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom a father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which... All have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. For the moment of, moment of discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields a peace, peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So when we think about trials, 
think about trials here. We go and it says, consider Jesus. Consider what he endured, how he, how he patiently uh, endured it. And it says that uh, this, is how we, this is how we do this. When times are tough, we look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, so that we may run this race with endurance. It's not a sprint. It's a marathon. And it's a, it's a lifelong thing, is that we persevere. And so this idea of, of, of saving faith endures trials is when we go through something, we ask God for wisdom. What are you trying to teach me? Help me to understand. Help me to grow. Help me not to miss the lesson here. Because there's, there is something he is, he is doing in our lives. And he allows these things to happen uh, to grow us, to make us more like him. And so sometimes it's a discipline. Sometimes it's just, it's just, how, it's just how God uh, works um, for whatever reason. And he, is, he is sovereign. And sometimes we don't understand but we can pray and ask God for wisdom. And so that was the first, the first thing we see in James, is faith endures trial. Next one is back in James chapter 1. Faith understands temptations. James chapter 1, verses 13 through 15. It says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured, enticed by his own desire. Uh, then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And so the first thing we need to know about this is that, because faith understands what temptation is. First of all, it's not from God. It says God cannot be tempted and he, and he tempts nobody. So temptation, and by the way, a lot of times we're like, uh, we, we give Satan a lot of credit, which he is active. He is active in our world. But our desires do a pretty good job of enticing us, do they not? Our own sinful desires, we see something and we desire that. Um, and again, it's different for everybody. But the temptation itself is not sin. It becomes sin when we give in to the temptation. And it kind of gives the process here. It uses, uses birth as an example but each person is tempted when he's lured away and enticed by his own desire. It says, then desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. So a saving faith, or faith, I should say, understands temptation. We need to understand and recognize when we're being tempted. And sometimes we have, and we're all different, and maybe we need to place some safeguards in our life to protect us from those temptations that, because a lot of times with with if you're like me, a lot of times it's the same stuff over and over and over. And the same stuff that, that tempts me may not tempt you. And, and, and so we, but we know, we know ourselves. And when we recognize, okay, every time I'm in this situation or every time I'm doing this, I'm being tempted. Well, maybe I need to put some safeguards there to protect against the temptation. We understand temptation. We need to understand it. So faith understands temptation, and it's a, pro- a process, is that we're tempted, and then it brings forth, um, it says, then desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death every time. Every time. This is, sin brings forth death, and that's what happened. When Adam and Eve sinned, death was brought into the world. And no, they didn't physically die at that moment, but spiritually they died, and then eventually physically they did die uh, because of sin. Third thing, James chapter 1, 
Faith obeys God's word. James chapter 1, verses 19 through 21. It says, Know this, my beloved brothers, that every person be, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness, rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. So I'm going to stop and t- look at this one just for a second. The saving, that saving faith obeys God's word. And I'm also going to lump in there the one that talks about it produces doers of the word. And if I'm going to go ahead and continue on through verse 25. So after I'll read verse 21 again. It says, Therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and forgets what he is like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, uh, being no no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts. See how he says that? He says uh, that they're not a hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts. He will be blessed in his doing. First thing he mentions here is being quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Now, that's just a good rule of life just for any of us, right? We need to be better hearers, better uh, uh, stop talking so much and not be so easily angered. But that's not really what the context here is. That's not what the context here is. That's a principle we can take and we ought to use in our life anyways. Uh, But what he's speaking about here is that we need to be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. We need to be, first of all, quick to hear God's word. We need to be quick to hear it. We need to be good listeners. When you read God's word, are you just reading it and checking it off? Or are you actually thinking about it and listening for the voice of God? So we need to be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger at whatever God's word reveals. And sometimes God's word reveals painful things. Sometimes his word reveals things that we, don't, we would rather not, uh, we'd rather just sweep under the rug. But we need to be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger in what God's word reveals. He tells them to put away sin. He says, and receive with meekness um, the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. So we need to read God's word, listen closely to it, and implant it in our hearts that it may grow our faith. It needs to be good. You can put it in our hearts so that it will grow our faith. And finally, he tells them to be doers of the word and not hearers only. And see, that's what I love about James. It's it's not vague at all. It says, do this. It says, don't just come and just sit and listen. Don't just come and read and just be a hearer only. He says, go do it. Don't be a hearer only, but be a doer of the word. He gives a couple of examples. He says, don't be the one who looks in the mirror and forgets what he looks like. Sometimes I'd rather just forget what I look like. But um, it says, don't be the person who looks in a mirror and walks away and totally forgets what you just saw. Maybe you, came, maybe you came to church and you leave. And I mean, I couldn't tell you what we, I couldn't tell you what I taught last week in class. So, I mean, I'm right there with you. But we leave and we totally forget what God's word spoke to us or how he spoke to us. Um, don't be the one who looks in the mirror and walks away and forgets what they look like. But he says, rather, look intently into the perfect law and do it. So when God's word says it, 
do it. It's pretty simple. I mean, simple, right? Not easy, but it's simple. If God's word says it, do it. And so James says, be a doer. I like how he says, be a doer who acts. A-C-T-S, not acts, but acts. <laughs> um, do be a doer who acts. And so saving faith obeys God's word, and it produces doers of the word, not just hearers only. Next thing we see is that um, faith harbors no prejudice. Go to James chapter uh, 2. And we're not going to spend a lot of time on this. I'm just going to read it. But James chapter 2, verse 1. It says, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in. If you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place. While you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. You have, not, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, uh, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are you not the rich ones who are not the rich ones, uh, the ones who oppress you, the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and convicted by the law of transgressors. See, that one's convicting. Because I like it says, if you do this, you sin. And it's so easy and so subtle to find ourselves doing that. Is that somebody walks in, and people walk in here all the time, and we make judgments like that. And a lot of times it's very subtle. And what does James say? He says, when you do that, you show partiality and you sin. And I have to repent of that. And so it's so subtle and we have to, be, we have to guard against this. But he says, when we show, when we show partiality, we are, at, we are living in sin. And so he says, don't, don't do that. Um, again, James just says it like it is. The next thing we see is that saving faith displays itself in works. And that's James chapter 2. We're going to go ahead and talk about this one a little longer as well. James chapter 2, verse 14. And this is the part that Luther really struggled with. I read that quote to begin with. Chapter 2 is where he really struggled with this. So James chapter 2, verse 14. It says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone, may, someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you not want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works. 
and that faith was completed by his works. So the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was a friend, called a friend of God. You see, a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And this is that, that's what had gotten Luther. <laughs> hey, he had a hard time with that. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the message and sent them out uh, by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. So the first thing we see is in verses 17 and 18. He says, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So someone will say, you have faith, I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. And what is Jesus, when you go back to the, uh, the, his final night with his disciples in John chapter 15, and he's talking about, I am the vine, you are the branches, and he speaks about bearing fruit, and that his will that we would bear much fruit, that we would, and this is what he's talking about here, is I will show you my faith by my works. My works don't save me. Faith in Jesus Christ alone saves me, but my works as the, as the outworking of what Jesus has done inside of me. Does that make sense? This is what he's getting at here. He uses a couple of examples. He uses Abraham. And it's interesting because Romans says that he was justified by faith, but James says he was justified by works. But let's look back at Romans chapter 4. Let's see what Paul says about this. Romans chapter 4. Verses 2 and 3, and then we'll read verses 9 through 11 there as well. It says, For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now go down to verse 9. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised, or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham uh, as righteous. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he was circumcised? Was, he account, was righteousness accounted to him before or after circumcision? It was before. It was before. So it was, it was not the circumcision that, uh, this act of circumcision that saved him. It was not after, but it was before he was circumcised. And so he's making this point here saying that it wasn't circumcision, this work that he did that saved him. His righteousness had already been accredited to his account before that ever happened, because he believed God. Um, go to Hebrews chapter 11 again. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17. It says, By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he, had, uh, he who had received the promises was an act of offering up his only son, of whom it is said, through Isaac, your offspring shall be named. So if you remember back in, in uh, Exodus, no, I'm sorry, Genesis, um, that Isaac was the son of promise. And God had told him that. And then God has this odd request, I want you to go sacrifice your son. So that, that's kind of what he's talking about here. Is that, uh, so we'll read that, uh, verse, pick up in verse, into uh, verse 17. Says he who had received the promises was uh, in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac uh, shall your offspring be named. 
He considered that God was able to even raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did raise him back. By, by, uh, oh, that's it right there. Um, but what we, it's interesting is that Hebrews gives us some, like, some commentary behind the scenes of what Abraham was thinking. He says, I believe God. God said that he is a son of promise, and so for whatever reason, he asked me to sacrifice him, so I'm going to do it because I believe that God will raise him back to life. That's great faith. That's great faith. And so he, he believed in God. And so in uh, James, he's using Abraham as an example. We see this example of Abraham, that faith in God comes first, then the actions follow. Faith comes first. Salvation by faith in, in Christ alone uh, comes first. And then our, when, when our lives are changed, we begin to follow God, the, the word, the actions come after that. James 2.22 says, There you see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. So there's this faith, and then there's the actions that follow. He also uses Rahab the prostitute as an example. Interesting character. He uses her as an example of this. And uh, why did Rahab hide the spies? Well, they had heard that everywhere Israel went, they destroyed people. She believed God. Did she not? Her faith was in the living God. And so she hid the spies because she believed in their God. And so she was saved. Of course, she was saved. She's in the genealogy of Christ now. Um, and it was because she believed in God. That's why she hid the spies. Because she believed in God and the, her actions followed. So she heard, she heard about him. She believed in him and said, I better hide these guys because their God's real and I believe in him. And so Rahab is used here as an example. So James is never trying to teach that we are justified by works. He's saying that once we are justified by faith alone, our actions will bear that out. And so your life is changed. You're fundamentally changed when you come to know Christ. Your life is different and our actions look different. And they are to look different. This is, what, this is the argument that he's making. And then if we see the next one, that faith controls the tongue. Now, this is a hard one. This is a hard one because so often we get angry and we just fly off the handle and we say things, ah, oh, I didn't really mean that. Well, where do, where do our words come from? They come from the heart. Out of the abundance of the heart, over for the heart, the mouth speaks. So if you've ever said anything in anger, that came, it came from somewhere came from your heart. And so the tongue is it's a difficult thing. And James says saving faith controls the tongue. And this is in chapter 3, verse 2 is where we'll start. And a lot of these, as I read these, I'm going, man, these are convicting. They're very convicting. Uh, James chapter 3, verse 2. It says, for we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is perfect man, able to bridle his whole body. If we put bits, in, bits into of the mouths of horses, and they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at ships also. Though so they are large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a force is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a, is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, Staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and is set on fire by hell. 
For every kind of beast and bird or the reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human can tame the tongue. It is restless, evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not be so. Does a spring bring forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives? Great grape vine uh, produce figs? Neither can a salt water uh, pond yield fresh water. And so he's talking about the tongue here. And what's interesting about the tongue, really what he says, he's saying in verse 2, he says, we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man. What's well, kind of an interesting statement. And what he's saying is a person's words reflect their character and thus are a key to their whole being. And of course, then he goes on and says, nobody can do this. No one can tame their tongue. Uh, no one can completely control their tongue. Now, hopefully over time, as we grow, as we grow in Christ, uh, we, we get better at this. But a person's words reflect their character and they come from the heart. And faith, uh, faith controls the tongue, this faith in Christ and relying on him. Verses 3 through 8, it says the tongue is one of the smaller organs of the body, but has similar control over everything a person does. For example, it uses, we put bits in the mouth of a horse and you can control a horse. And I always think, that horse just knew. We can't make it do anything, if it only knew. But we've been able to tame horses and, and control them with a bit that's in their mouth. Also uses a, a rudder of a ship. You get this massive vessel and relatively small rudder. I mean, it's probably a pretty good sized rudder, but in comparison to the size of the ship, uh, it's, it's small. It says that's what the tongue is. That's what the tongue is. The words that we say will reveal a lot about our character. The words that we say will reveal a lot about what's going on inside. So if you want to kind of know what's going on inside, take a look at your speech. Take a, word, take a look at how, how you speak. And, and again, like I say, when I read these things, it's very, very convicting. It talks about the tongue. It says it boasts great things. Pride is a major cause of the misuse of the tongue. It boasts great things. Uh, small fire. It talks about small fire setting things ablaze. A small fire is these proud boasts. There are other careless uses of the tongue. And a great forest fire can be started, results in extensive devastation. And there's nothing more devastating than what a fire does. I think it was 2011, the Little Bear Fire in Rio Dosa that, that it, burned, it totally burned things to the ground. The camp that we used to go to, they lost half their camp. It's burnt, all that's left there is foundations. The total devastation of fire. And our words are powerful. And we can use them to, they can be devastating to people. We can devastate people with the words that we say. This is kind of the word imagery he's using here. It says, the world of unrighteousness, setting on fire the entire course of life. It says, it's set on fire by hell. Evil speech destroys because it comes from Satan himself. That's what James is saying. And then verse 9. Verse 9 again. With it we bless our Father, our Lord and Father. With it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth comes blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not 
to be so. James says he calls it hypocrisy and folly to bless God. Let's just say, just for an example, in a worship service. We come here, we're going to sing song, we're going to praise God with our, with our mouths, with our lips. And then we go to lunch and curse somebody. He says these things ought not be so. It's hypocrisy is what he calls it. Is that we go and we, so we praise God with our, with our mouths and then we curse others who are made in the image of God. And he says these things ought not be so. And again, convicting. Uh, a few things about our words. Go to Proverbs chapter 18. Hopefully we're not going too fast through all this stuff. And just so much of it we're trying to, just flying through, trying to just hit the, hit the high points here. But Proverbs 18, verse 21. It says, death and life are in the power of the tongue. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. So do, you, do the words that you speak, are you speaking life or are you speaking death? Are you speaking hope or is there cursing? Cursing, I'm talking about uh, hurting, speaking uh, harshly in, in cutting words. So are you speaking life or death? That is in the power of the tongue. Go to um, Proverbs chapter 26. James is speaking of this, this fire that is out of control. Um, that can be out of control with, with the words that we speak. In Proverbs chapter 26, verse 20. It says, For lack of wood, the fire goes out. Where there is no whisperer, quarreling ceases. So what's this, for lack of wood, the fire goes out. So what, what's this saying about gossip? Guess where it stops? Is when it comes to you and you stop it. Where there's no wood, the fire goes out. And so this is uh, another thing about gossip and things like that. Uh, the words we say, we, they, 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 show the char- they show a lot about our character. And I don't really like that. <laughs> I don't know about you because if I really begin to look really begin to look and think and examine and evaluate, um, this is hard. This is hard. Um, so I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> but uh, this is difficult. And then we see the next thing, moving on. Kind of skipping around here, so I'm going to make sure I didn't already talk about this. Um, oh, good, yeah. Faith acts wisely. Faith acts wisely. Uh, James chapter 3, verse 13. It says, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good, good conduct, let him show his works with meekness of wisdom. Meekness meaning not trying to draw attention to himself. I'm just going to do it right. I'm just going to do it right. It says, But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that has come down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. Uh, other versions may say sensual, demonic. For jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom which is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So he contrasts here worldly wisdom versus godly wisdom. First of all, 
he says that worldly wisdom is earthly, unspiritual, or maybe your version says sensual, and demonic. And so, of course, progressively, it's progressively getting worse here. And what this worldly wisdom eventually leads to is what we see in verse 16. Where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. What is the root of every sin? Self-seeking. If I, if you, and think about your life. Is in, in, anytime you sin, who ultimately were you thinking about every time? Thinking of myself, right? Self-preservation. I want what I, I want. I have my rights. I, I, I you know, they they offended me. Uh, you know, you talk about with a. You talk. You can talk to kids and say, "Hey, your parents gave you a curfew." They said it's eleven o'clock. You roll in about twelve. Um, who are they thinking about? Think about you, what's best, right? Think about what's best for the kid. Who's the kid thinking about? Themselves. I don't give a rip what they say. I'm going to do what I want. And you can apply this to every situation in your life, every sin in your life. If you get down to it and you begin to evaluate and think about it, who was I thinking about? Every time it's, I was thinking about myself. And this is what he's saying here, is that this worldly wisdom leads to this. And we, be, and we begin to be self-seeking and thinking only of self. And then he compares it with godly wisdom. He says it's pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. I mean, you can just read the two lists and say these are, I mean, they're polar opposites of each other. Totally different. Worldly wisdom versus godly wisdom, again, they're polar Opposites. We're going to pick up in James chapter 4, verse, verse 4. We'll read through verse 10. It says, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And so we see, first of all, worldly wisdom. You're, at odds with, you're an enemy of God. Says you've, if you've become friends of the world, you made yourself an enemy of God. Verse 5. Or do you not suppose, suppose uh, it is uh, to no purpose that the, script, the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he's made to dwell in us. See, God wants to be in a relationship with us. We are created to be in a relationship with him. And he puts the spirit in us and it says he yearns jealously over spirit that he's made to dwell in us. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil. He will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. So he's saying, worldly wisdom, enemy of God. Godly wisdom, we can draw near to him. He says, resist the devil and draw near to God. Submit to God. So there's, there's a two totally different things he's speaking of here. So how do we act wisely? Because we see that saving faith acts wisely by knowing and obeying God's word. We've got to know it first. We've got to know what God's word says, and then we do it. Be a doer of the word, as he speaks of earlier um, in this. I think we're getting close to being done. We're not going to hit all, like I said, not going to hit all these. Um, Faith, okay, we'll move down to number 11 that's on your list here. Faith waits patiently for the coming of the Lord. Uh, coming of the Lord. Uh, chapter 5, 
verses 7 and 8. We're almost done. about to wrap this up. James chapter 5, verses 7 and 8. It says, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until he receives, uh, receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. As we patiently wait for the Lord's return. And make no mistake, he will return. He's coming again. And so what do we do in the meantime? As we're going through difficult times in life, and we live in a crazy culture <laughs> these days, crazy world, um, and all the stuff that's going on, what do we do? We live our lives to bring honor and glory to God, and we patiently wait for his return. We go about our lives. We go about our daily lives. We honor the Lord. We do what's right. We, we, we continue to know his word. We grow in him. We begin, we were doers of the word, and we just patiently wait on him, knowing that he's coming again. Patiently waiting doesn't mean we sit around and do nothing. That's not what that means is that may when Jesus comes again, he finds us doing, he finds us working, he finds us serving. Um, but we patiently wait for the coming of the Lord. And then finally, faith through trouble and trial stifles complaining. And that's in verse 9 of chapter 5. It says, Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not uh, be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those... Consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. He says, consider the prophets. Consider Job. The steadfastness, he says, you have seen the purpose of the Lord. Job had no clue what was going on. He had no idea why he was suffering the way he was. God did. God knew. And the, we never know if Job ever did know. But we see that we, we believe this is how we can have joy in, in difficult times. It says that, he says, you've heard the steadfastness of Job, how you've seen the purpose of the Lord, is that God has a purpose in everything he does. And that God's always going to do what's right. And it says, and it says, see how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. We, he, we, we serve a compassionate and merciful God. And yes, he loves us enough that when we're in sin, he chastens us and he disciplines us, just like you do your own kids. Is, why do we do that? It's for their good. And so when he chastens us and he disciplines us, it's for our good. Of course, he's our perfectly heavenly father. And a lot of times we don't know what good is. He does. We, we may think we know what's best. We may think we know what good is, but we don't. He is God does know. And it says the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So we go through this whole book. We're saved by faith through, or saved by grace through faith alone in Jesus Christ. And when, when that happens, we are transformed. We are no longer the same. You can go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and read about that. We are no longer the same person. We are a new creature. We are a new creation. And so now that we are fun, fundamentally changed the core in our life, changes us. So the way we think is different. Our priorities are different. Our desires are different. The way we live our lives and the things that we do, it's different. Why? Because we've been transformed. And works follow faith. So faith comes first, then the works come 
as a byproduct, as a, as a fruit of what God has done in us because we are no longer the same. When previously we had no ability to serve him, we had no ability to even desire him. We're spiritually dead. We've all seen people who are dead. They have no ability to respond. No, no ability on their own. We had no ability to respond on our own. But Jesus Christ came and he breathed life into our dead souls and we are no longer the same. And we recognize that we are sinners and we are undeserving of that. And yet God loved us and he saves us and he changed us and made us new. Why wouldn't we be different? And see, that's where, that's what's scary. A lot of, what, are, what are you trusting in for your salvation? I said a prayer when I was a kid. Or, or I said a prayer last week. Or I was, a lot of people say, hey, I was baptized. Or I grew up going to this church. My grandfather was pastor. You know, you, you name it. You hear all kinds of stuff. But what are you trusting in? Are you trusting in something that you've done, something that you did? Or is your faith in Jesus Christ alone and what he did? See, that's the difference. And when we, when we fall on him, we recognize that we are sinners, that he is a great God of mercy, compassion and mercy, and we fall on his grace. And we ask him to, to save us. At that moment, you're changed. And so if, again, it's hard. It's hard when you think about, like, because, you know, I have, I have younger kids, and when they're saved and they're younger, you know, they weren't, like, hardened criminals yet. Yeah, you hear those kind of things. Uh, I was saved as a young, as a, as a, a kid. Sometimes you're going, what was I, I saved from? And some of you will identify with that. Um, but guess what? God saved me from a lot of things that could have really scarred my life. See, I was spared from those things. Praise God for that. And by the way, I was still a sinner on my way to hell. Let's not forget that. Um, and so were you. And yet he saved you. Some of you may have been, you were saved as you were, as an adult. And your life is different. When we truly encounter Jesus Christ as a Savior, we can't leave and not be different. We can't. If there's no change, we need to check up. We need to check up and make sure. So the question is, as we wrap up tonight... Does your lifestyle exhibit that you've experienced saving faith? James is never saying that work saves us. All he's saying is that if you're a believer, you're a genuine believer, uh, your life should look like it. That's kind of what he's saying. So does your lifestyle exhibit that you've experienced saving faith? Do your words and actions match up? So many people, and you probably know a lot of people, <clears throat> if you were to ask most people, are you saved? Are you a Christian? Yeah, I'm a Christian. Wouldn't know it. Couldn't have ever guessed it. I mean, their words are meaningless because there's no lifestyle to back it up. Um, so do your words and your actions match? That's the point of this entire letter, is that genuine faith in Christ for salvation will produce fruit in your life. Is there fruit being produced in your life? And finally, we see that James is a very practical letter, full of how to live, a Christian life. So I'd encourage you, it's, it's short. It's five chapters, and they're really not, they're not long chapters, um, but there's so much in it. We couldn't talk, I mean, we just hitting the tip of the iceberg tonight. Uh, there's so much in it about how to live a Christian life, and, and wisdom, and, and how we get wisdom, and it's just, again, so much. I'd encourage you to go read it. It's very practical. 
about how we are to live our lives. And um, I'd encourage you to do that. <clears throat> so don't leave here tonight. If you have questions about uh, <laughs> the salvation, about salvation, uh, genuine faith, these things, don't leave tonight if you have questions about that. Um, or questions about anything else, you can catch, after, catch me afterward. But uh, this is, uh, I love James. It's a great book. So much in it. Again, I'd encourage you to go home and read it. It won't take you very long at all. But uh, that's all we got. Uh, let's pray. God, thank you so much. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you for sending your son <clears throat> or to pay the penalty of our sins. God, I thank you that we are justified by faith alone in Jesus Christ. It's not based on our own goodness. Uh, praise God for that. Um, Lord, I ask that you would help us, those of us in here who know you, those of us in here who have, who have been saved. God, I ask that you would convict us of these areas that we're, um, we, we fall short in, that we might repent. God, that, we, that our lifestyle would, uh, would be different than the world around us. That when people see our lives, people that don't know you, we'd be markedly different. Uh, because we've been changed, we are we are different. So help us to uh, live this live this out, this new reality of of this new nature. I pray that you help us to live this out in our lives, and that you'd use us to reach people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. God, that's what we're about, and I pray that you'd help us to do that in Jesus' name. Amen.